0: When my younger kid was five, they would ask me to come check on them when they were going to sleep. They asked me to come in in five minutes. I said 10. They said seven. I said eight. And to propose a compromise, they suggested sate. I said okay, only partly because it was an undefined period of time that I felt like I could probably stretch. That wasn't the only trick to getting them to go to sleep. Occasionally, I suggested they count as high as they could. Once, I recorded the counting from the hallway. A hundred and sixty, hundred and sixty-one, 160, hundred and sixty, Can Sure, how much are you going to count to? Do you know? Um, ten hundred. Ten hundred? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Where was I? hundred and sixty-two, I think. Oh. Okay. Okay. Good night. Good night. I'll check on you in another seat. Thanks. Okay. Okay. 6600, 6700. It was only three, years, was three years, years ago, hundred, but that voice is gone now. 69. Eight and five are very different ages. When they asked me the other night to check on them in eight minutes, it was a self conscious throwback. That five year old's not coming back. And I think that's part of why those of us who are parents, or those of us who are teachers, or other caretakers for young people, that's why we can feel such serious delight every so often when we're watching our kid do this or that surprising and wonderful thing. Because that moment is about to be gone forever. On some level, you know it. So underneath the delight, you're also feeling a kind of grief. But if you're lucky enough to be able to share that grief, or the many more serious sorrows we all inevitably encounter. If you have people you love who you can share that with, who will help you carry that burden, that's when it can also bloom into something else, which poet Ross Gay would say is joy.
1: One of the questions that people will ask me is something like, is joy the serious subject of, you know, is joy serious? Is it worth our time? And to me, that's a kind of evidence of a childish definition of joy. And that that's kind of like the joy that you get when you get a new pair of shoes, you know, which isn't joy. It's something else. It's like, yeah, you got a new pair of shoes. Joy, the definition being my definition, you know, the definition I'm sort of wondering about being the light that emanates from us when we help each other carry each other's sorrows is something else. It's not that at all.
0: Ross Gay is the author of four books of poetry, including Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Beholding, which won the Pan-American Literary Gene Stein Award. His first collection of essays, The Book of Delights, was a New York Times bestseller. This is Interstates, by the way. I'm Alex Chambers, and I asked Ross in because his latest collection of essays comes out on October 25th. It's called Inciting Joy, and a big part of what it's about is how joy and sorrow are completely, inevitably intertwined. As are we, with each other, if we're willing to acknowledge it. Or really, even if we're not willing. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Ross. Ross Gay, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be hanging out with you.
0: Yeah, really good to be together. I was thinking maybe we could start with the movement from delight to joy. And there are two things really I think that I'm interested in there. One is, what was the progression like as a subject? Maybe it seems obvious on some level, but when I think about the delights book, one of the things you were trying to do was to like get at the ways that delight is complex and you know has to do with sadness and hurt. Personally, I see that more clearly already in the word joy. And so I guess part of the thought is that joy kind of allows you maybe to delve even deeper mm-hmm. and more expansively at the same time, which brings me to the other piece that I'm curious to hear about, which is the move from essayettes mm. to these longer form essays.
1: Yeah. You sort of nailed it in a way, like the delights are these short essays where, you know, as I think of it, the ones that are, you know, if they're interesting to me at all, you know, for listeners who have don't know the book it's the book of delights it's a book of essays 102 essays but i gave myself the project back in 2016 to 2017 to write an essay every day about something that delighted me and i gave myself these little constraints and one was to write them every day and one was to write them quickly and one was to write them by hand and if those are interesting to me at all as a project it's it's because there's um a kind of tension between delight and undelight. Because sometimes people just want to imagine that there's such a thing as delight, a sort of untarnished, (laughs) uncomplicated, unadult delight, you know. And I remember someone, I don't know, I can't remember if she was introducing me at a reading or if she just wrote an email or something, but she was just sort of noting that in the first 10 essays, I'm talking about, you know, my father dying, my my buddy having leukemia, um, scientific racism, like in the first 10 essays. It's just like, you know, it's like about life, so we're going to go hard. So anyway, but I think the way that you put it actually is almost precisely it. The move from delight to joy is... is uh, It doesn't feel like I was moving from one thing to another exactly in my head. At least I haven't yet thought of it. I was in a way, I think I was... Thinking about this this fundamental question that arose in the Book of Delights, which was how what is the tension between delight and sorrow, for instance, delight and undelight, and that sort of curiosity about that. Um, Tension made me thinking about joy, which I think of, and I figure this out in the process of writing the book of delights, and an essay in it called "Joy is such human madness," which is a quotation from a Zadie Smith essay called "Joy," which is one of the kernels of this book, really. Where I started to think that joy itself is something like the light that emanates from us when we help each other carry our sorrows, when we share each other, when we help each other carry each other's sorrows. You know, that's that light that comes from that. And maybe it's coming from the tethers between us, you know, that are there regardless. And given as we all sorrow, though we may not all sorrow the same or have the same sorrows we all sorrow, it seems to me that joy is available to us all. If that definition, <laughs> which I like, <laughs> holds, it, it suggests that we all have access to joy. I hadn't thought of it like this, but to sort of expand the thinking that's happened in The Delights in a way it required, I think, maybe a kind of formal expansion so that the essays and The Delights are maybe three to five pages for the most part these essays go from you know the shortest one maybe is 6 or 7 pages to like i think 45 pages or something too long you know <laughs> the longest ones too long <laughs> and it, that just seems like the question of joy the the deep and abiding question which makes and i think of it as a question that's the equivalent in significance to a question of like what's gratitude or what's love I think it makes sense that you'd need all kinds of attempts and some of those attempts would be very long.
0: And more discursive, too.
1: More getting lost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, more. I was really struck by the, the the kind of the joy in the footnotes. Yeah. You know, especially toward the end where there's like yeah. multi-page footnotes. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I love the essay as a form in part because it, it just holds the fact that these are just attempts. They, these are not like these are not these are not going to be like masteries. These are going to be like artifacts of my being lost and wandering through that. And the footnotes, in a way, they kind of feel like maybe they are some of the evidence of that because in a way, what the footnotes are doing is saying, yeah, I'm saying all this stuff, but here's all this whole other thing that I could get into. Which to me probably implies. And then there's all this other stuff that I'm not getting into. And if you were to talk about this, you'd get into all this stuff. So yeah, those footnotes were part of the funnest part of <laughs> writing that book.
0: I guess I'm curious a little bit more about the writing. Like did it feel as you were getting into it, moving on from the delights to the to these longer essays, did the writing feel different? Like the feel of the relationship to like the process itself? Mm. So
1: I wrote, you know, the the Joy book more or less in, what year was that? 2021, I think, is when that book more or less was written. So it's, you know, The Lights was 2016, August 1st, 2016, August 1st, 2017. So it's like four years later Yeah, that I wrote that book. In the meantime, I'd been writing all kinds of other stuff, you know, writing about land and gardens and basketball and... And I also think in those intervening years, I learned how to write longer and more weird to say, hard to imagine, but more digressively. (laughs) You know, so it's like there's something about those essays. And I think the footnote is actually a way, a formal way to sort of hold the digressions. But um, there's something that I learned in the last four years. Whereas before, I think in The Delights, I'm inclined to sort of veer off a little bit. Because I was drafting them in a short amount of time, I couldn't go too far. With these, there wasn't an endpoint to like how far I could go or if I needed to come back. And that's a thing that I learned in the last four years. I mean, that's a thing that I, I was not doing before, but in the course of all this other different kinds of writing, um some of which is writing with students too. You know, trying to sort of help students get lost in their writing. I was I was doing that too.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I was wanting to talk about was that essay, yeah. Dispatch from the Ruins. Yeah. I guess maybe we could go back to kind of where you were, which is working with students and think about kind of your trajectory toward learning with students
1: i've been a basketball coach or i was a basketball coach for years one of the ways you teach basketball is by playing basketball with kids you know and i learned that and i was with other coaches who did that i also am friends with like theater artists who's watching their kind of drills with their students and stuff has really informed how i think about what a classroom space can be. But there is this other sort of real thing, which is that, you know, I came up in a, a very kind of normal hierarchical model of education where there was in various forms, a leader of the class. And there were in various forms, passengers to the class. And at some point, it became clearer and clearer to me that the you know, in, in a creative writing classes, they're called workshops. And there's the workshop director and, you know, and then there's the participants. And the goal of the class, it seems to me, is for the students to either have their their work be fixable or to have their work be um, liked. You know, it's to either be fixable or good. And that is not necessarily what I'm interested in, <laughs> either for my own work, but also as a teacher or someone in class with other people studying with other people i'm not i'm not interested in being fixed and i'm not interested in being good actually nor am i interested in like sort of i guess if that's what other people want to do that's i'm happy for them but i'm not i'm not interested in it so i think i was teaching undergrads and grads and myself being the sort of the figure at the top of the hierarchy giving grades correcting fixing, (laughs) saying what's good and bad. And I felt horrible a lot of the time. I felt guilty. I felt like a failure. I felt always fraudulent. A little bit of me, like, what do I know? Always. I remember, like, spending so much time because I'd build out, of course, a kind of pristine and impenetrable rubric for my classes, you know, (laughs) and, like, the grading systems. Partly because I would be teaching classes where I'd have... TAs, I'd have graduate students teaching, so we had to map it out just perfectly so they know everything, what they do in, in class and how to grade and what to take off for what, you know, what, how many points. <laughs> and there was so much time spent talking about what we take points off for. God, yeah. And, you know, I did it probably, like, a few times knowing how stupid and sad, actually, this was. Um, just really setting up a situation where kind of the the main job of the teacher is to just start taking points off of someone's uh, (laughs) soul, it felt like. (laughs) And at some point, I was just like, I'm not doing that anymore. I can't do that. And there are all kinds of reasons, you know, like someone who's important to both of us, the writer Fred Moten. I saw him talk about teaching Mm -hmm. at some point. He was here at IU, actually. Mm -hmm. And he talked about teaching and and he said something like he had a professor who right off the bat said everyone was going to get an A just so people could think and actually like be creative and take some risks. That blew my mind, you know, and I had been like over the years, of course, reading Noam Chomsky or, you know, if you look around, you hear him say such things, you know, Mm -hmm. and other people like that, too. You know, my partner. A long time ago, I remember her saying that grading is cynical. And it was, at the time, puzzling to me. And then it became clearer and clearer that, that, oh, it's absolutely cynical. Because it's not anything to do with learning. It's purely to do with a way of measuring whether or not a, a person is obedient and can just follow the rules which is just you know it's uh <laughs> it's it's a sorrow to be participating in that sometimes you have to you know sometimes to get paid and to keep your insurance you got to do that but um i got out of that situation and <laughs> i hate it i hate it and i i love this new mode of teaching which feels like really the thing that that i'm curious about um is how do we be together and care for one another's, what we don't know. Mm-hmm. That to me is like the coolest thing. You know, let's be together and like wonder together. Let's be sort of mutually befuddled and care about it and tend to it, you know? So yeah, those are the kind of classes I want to I be in. And they tend to be more, obviously more exciting classes, partly because I'm no longer a cop. Yeah.
0: That undertow is so intense. Both in terms of like the to grade and to rate and all that stuff. But also I think to want to make their work better. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, and as though we know how. Right. And that's like the that's the like I know how to write a simile. And I know how to coach people up on write similes. That's not hard for me. So, you know, if it's like that, but but so there is the thing of, like, you know, we can coach each other up on how to do that stuff. But there are bigger questions. There are always bigger questions. I mean, to me, a classroom is probably not particularly worth a creative writing classroom. You know, and I say, I have, like, a joke in the in the book where I say something like, if your job is, <laughs> you know, like, putting in stints and hearts or something, or, like, <laughs> or making the LSD... <laughs> Or, like, you know, doing like the the things on the tires, you know, that keep the. (laughs) I hope you are like on it, you know, and I suspect there's a way that we can, you know, you can determine that. (laughs) I can't determine about a poem. Yeah. You know, and, and I actually, and if I can, it's probably not the poem I'm that interested in, you know?
0: Right. So what are uh, some of the bigger questions that you end up trying to get into?
1: You know, it's funny. Like, just the other day in our class, we were reading um, a beautiful book by someone named Heather Crystal. It's called The Crying Book. It was in between that and reading Mural Rukeyser's incredible book, The Book of the Dead. And we were talking, and this question about need came up. And this question about how do we tend to each other's needs and how do we be honest about having needs? And how do we be generous about, you know, receiving or tending to the needs of other people? That felt like a serious question, Yeah. you know? A bigger question like than, like, um, uh, how do I do what you want me to do? <laughs>
0: yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Or even, like, how do I do what I think I want to do to make this phone better? Yes.
1: Yes, how do I improve? How do I improve? Right. Way more interested in, like, how do we honor and care for one another's needs than— I'm way more interested in that than I am in how do I make my poem the best poem. Yeah, yeah. I wish for your poem everything that it wants to be. I really do. And I'm happy to talk with you, anyone, about it. <laughs> but I'm way less interested in that, frankly, than, than what's maybe behind the, the question of, questions of the poems. You know, because the poems always have questions that are bigger than the thing of making a good poem. Right and that's maybe that answers your question in a certain kind of way. Yeah. Like that's there's all there's always these bigger questions in a way that great question that that the focusing on fixing the thing or making a better thing or making a best thing actually obscures. Yeah. You know. And I, you know that might be what if we followed that through like part of the sorrow maybe of uh, a lot of education is that there is this sort of fundamental or a set of fundamental and abiding and necessary and beautiful questions, like how do we care for one another, that really get obscured by how do I be the best? Mm -hmm. How do I succeed? Mm -hmm. How do I get this last parcel of A's, Mm -hmm. you know, at the exclusion of these people sitting around me?
0: It's time for a quick break. You're listening to a conversation with Ross Gay about his new book, Inciting Joy. This is Interstates. We'll be right back. Interstates, Alex Chambers. When we left, poet Ross Gay was telling me how he tries to focus on bigger questions when he teaches, not how to fix this or that poem, but how do we care for one another? Let's get back to it. So you have this essay about kind of all this. Yeah. But it's also about... Benito Sereno. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) So I was wondering if you could maybe tell the story of Benito Sereno for people who aren't familiar. And then what I want to do is ultimately get back to what we were just talking about with students and caring for each other in the classroom. Yeah. So
1: Benito Sereno is a Herman Melville novella. It's like probably, I don't know, 100 pages. I think it's, I can't remember if it's before or after Moby Dick. There's a ship, and there's a character named Amasa Delano. And Amasa is an American ship captain who sees this ship casting in the distance and knows, can tell that the ship's in trouble. So he takes his ship, you know, he drives his ship over (laughs) to this this ship that's in trouble. And he hops on it. (laughs) And he notices that there's all these, you know, black people, all these Africans aboard decks, you know, I think so how they say it. And he thinks, oh, that's strange. But he just kind of rolls with it. And then he meets the captain of the ship, who's always attended to by this character named Babo. The captain of the ship is named Benito Sereno. And he's with Babo. And Sereno looks kind of, I don't know, like uh, you can't trust him. (laughs) That's what Amasa Delano's thinking. Um, and Bobo always right there next to Sereno. So anything Sereno says, like Bobo kind of looking at him <laughs> and Delano is just really suspicious of Benito Sereno and thinks he's up to something and he doesn't trust him. And it kind of carries on through the, through the book. And it, there are so many things about this book that I just, you know, could talk about, but ultimately what you, you find out is that Amasa... Well,
0: maybe before that even... We, there's one scene, I think, especially, which you describe in here.
1: Yeah, it's like <laughs> one of the best scenes I've ever read in all of the literature. And I haven't read a lot, so that's not saying a lot, but I've read some. So, <laughs> so, you know, one of my favorite passages, put it like that, where at some point, Babo is shaving Benito Sereno, and Amasa comes into wherever the... Maybe it's the captain's quarters or whatever where this is happening. And, Ser, and uh, Babo puts a flag of the Spanish flag as a towel over Sereno's chest, as like as a towel. Um, And Amasa Delano, kind of a proper upstanding liberal American, thinks, oh, isn't that cute? You know, these blacks, they're like Newfoundland dogs. They're they're such good attendants. And he doesn't even know what he's doing. (laughs) <laughs> and, of course, Babo's doing everything. Bobo's running the whole show. Bobo's sort of the, the puppet master or the orchestrator of the whole situation. Because it turns out that it's an it's a, um, uprising or a, an insurgency, and the people are on deck because they've taken over the ship. That's what's happening. But because uh, Amasa Delano is who he is, he can't imagine that that could have happened. So anyway, you know it. You know I was going to say the whites win, but it's more complicated than that actually. But one of the things that's amazing about this book is that there's such sophisticated narrative techniques, and part of that is that there's a narrator. The narrator often hews very closely to the ignorant American <laughs> good liberals. <laughs> I think that's what you'd call him. Um, He feels familiar to me as a character. And he, the narrator often hews close to Amasa Delano. So you get a a narrator, then you get a very close to Amasa Delano voice, and then you get this third voice at least, which is this transcript um, at the end of the book. And the transcript is the people who are still alive because there's an uprising, it does become um, violent, people get killed people reporting on what happened and it gets filled out. So there's all these these voices, these tellings of the story, all these perspectives. Which is to say in one hand, on the one hand, it's sort of a masterclass on irony. Yeah. Everything that's being said, there's another angle to learn it from. So you have to put it all together. And I think it's for that reason that people don't know if it's if Melville is being racist, you know, <sighs> by depicting so articulately Amasa Delano's racism. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's hard to know, and that's to me what makes the book brilliant. And really one of my favorite books. Like if I have five favorite books, I think it's one of my favorite five favorite books. Anyway, and one of the one of the things that happens, you learn in the um, I think you learn in the deposition um, the the court document afterwards, is that among the things that happened was that the owner of the ship where these enslaved Africans were um, being transported, after they took over the ship, they killed and boiled the owner of the cargo. (laughs) And they hung his bones on the, I think you say bowsprit, maybe bowsprit, I'm not sure, but on the front of the ship. And scrawled beneath where they had hung his bones was follow your leader, the phrase follow your leader, which I think is a pretty nice touch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And which is what brings it back to the the question of, of teaching yeah. and education. Yeah. So, OK, I think I might want you to read this.
1: And yeah, and I'll read this. And let me just first contextualize it. Yeah. Partly what the way that it gets prompted in, in this essay and in my sort of thinking about it is that basically I'm, Stephanie and I, my partner and I are driving home from Vermont where we had like a, a little vacation and we keep getting caught behind these Amazon trucks and their, their smile, um, whatever that smile and an arrow. And enough times, it happens enough times then I think of the phrase, follow your leader. And I'm thinking, oh right now I'm following my leader, whether or not my leader is Jeff Bezos or the corporation of Amazon or the sort of economic, et cetera, social, et cetera, horror show that we're in the, we find ourselves in the midst of, which is, you know, one of the many ends of our time on this planet, it seems to me. And it helps me, it helped me to sort of understand, oh, that this, though that story of the rebellion on the ship um, is a, it's a story about an abolitionist story. It's a story of overthrowing the um, the owners, the masters, the dominators. It's also a story about labor. And it's a story about workers being brutalized, going on strike, putting an end to the brutality. <laughs> and which is to say, in the... the the brutalizers are also the ones who are participating in or like leading, maybe leading the charge to the end of the earth. And so in a way, I I sort of am wondering about this book as a kind of the story of a revolt against who wanted actually to
0: destroy the earth. And that brought us back to the part of Ross's book that I wanted him to read. Quick reminder, he's talking about Melville's Benito Sereno, specifically that moment when Babo is shaving Benito Sereno, the uh, supposed captain of the ship. One of the things that happens during the
1: shaving scene where Babo very intentionally is draping the flag of Spain over Benito Sereno's neck, and Amasa Delano is thinking how cute that he doesn't even recognize the, the, <laughs> the potency of his symbology. <laughs> um, he actually drags the blade a little bit along Serrano's throat and he nicks him a little bit and a little blood comes and Benito Serrano kind of gasps and faints (laughs) And, and Amasa Delano is like easy it's okay he didn't mean it and as I say Amasa's like yo relax it's only a little blood Babo didn't mean it but Babo who is, incidentally, along with Zuela from The Autobiography of My Mother, Sixo from Beloved, and a few others, among my very favorite characters in all of literature, meant it, which Amasa realizes last second, just barely dodging being shark food as he disembarks back to his own vessel, followed by a freaking-out Sereno, a few of his freaking-out crewmates, and finally the very much not-freaking-out, though powerfully abolitionist Africans, Babo at the fore, daggers swinging, in the midst of which the drape drops from the ship's bowsprit to reveal the owner of the cargo, looking worse for the wear, given that he had been killed, boiled, and hung there, a skeleton, you see, by the abolitionists, which must have been unnerving to him, for he thought those people were his, and scrawled in chalk beneath his bones the words, follow your leader which, at the conclusion of the book, Sereno, now dispatched to convalesce at a monastery in Peru. How does a monastery get to Peru? You are correct. And suffering from what these days would be called chronic PTSD, likewise dies, at the ripe old age of 29. That's what I was thinking, driving in the wake of all these Amazon trucks, behind their evil unidirectional grins, The smirk, I suppose, of progress pointing into the future which is here, which is ashy and hot, which we'd know if we cared what the birds thought, the trees, the trillion gratitudes, who lived with the trillion gratitudes, or if we listened to those who cared, or if we knew how to listen to them, or were permitted to listen to them, by which I mean if we were not tricked out of listening to them by the owners, who also own the authorities, the leaders, who for some reason we entrusted to protect us while they were organizing every single thing into exchangeable, I know, I know, just bear with me, units. If only we had read Benito Sereno, a complicated novella about a volatile strike by stolen and brutalized workers against the owners of the world. Or better yet, a story about a rebellion against who murdered the world. I mean, the earth
0: it hits yeah 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 it gets hot in there in that essay yeah <laughs> it really does and it's so fascinating because it like at the beginning you're talking about being in this meeting in the english department yeah. where there's an administrator who's referring i know i know apologetically yeah. to the students as units yeah and uh and it, it seems like it could be like kind of a thoughtful piece about pedagogy, right. which it is, yeah. but it's so much bigger than that too. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, it is. I think it's like that, that thing of like getting behind those trucks. Like, I mean, all these connections, I think that, that happen in the, in the piece, you hear someone say, refer to students as units. It's hard not to think of them as like stuff you put on a shelf yeah. and put into a shipping container going somewhere yeah it's hard not to think that and i think that's a point too like i think actually that's what they're thinking (laughs) that's i think that's what they're thinking whether or not they would say it i think they it would be like you know yeah
0: right they are the the exchangeable thing you are the object you are the
1: the object and the product you are the unit right yeah and then so and when we talk about like teaching where that in a way the production of units is actually is actually the job in a certain kind of way, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And you're evaluated on your capacity to produce units. It's not You're not evaluated on your capacity to express care. You're not evaluated on your capacity to love people. You're not evaluated on your capacity to, like, you know, have people do something they, they never could have imagined doing. You're really evaluated on your capacity to produce these units who are themselves evaluated on their capacity to be units it's it's really sad
0: <laughs> it is really sad and and I think what's so what I love so much about this moment is that it's it becomes well both about the history of slavery and how that and capitalism are part of what led to the world we're in today but also that like thinking of students as units then also connects to how we're burning up The planet?
1: Totally. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like it's part and parcel. Yeah. But the, you know, these sort of, these institutions, which are all part of the whole, the same machinery, you know, you think of, I mean, even just like off the cuff, just thinking about this, like if you think of the university as a place that might be refuge, actually, from the brutality, Mm -hmm. and then you learn, in fact, it's just part of it. It's actually like, in a way it's one of the places where the brutality gets laundered into something as though it's like philanthropy as though it's something beneficent yeah and in fact it's it's just part of it it's just all it's just part of it
0: it's part of it and it's laundered like philanthropy or a place where people learn to make the brutality look nice
1: that's it yeah yeah you learn to fit into, brutali- into the
0: brutality one way or another and reproduce it in a way that you can disguise it from yourself. Yeah, totally. You
1: know, it's, it's why <laughs> for listeners, I'm making a face. It's sort of like a, <laughs> it's a face, you yeah, know, like and it's, rough. it's rough. And it's also like, in. Um, I mentioned I have a little footnote about David Graeber's brilliant book on bullshit jobs. <laughs> and he talks a lot about academia because he was a teacher a lot. And this kind of mandate to produce units is one of the things that makes a kind of beautiful job, a potentially beautiful job, a job about really ultimately about like caring about each other into this other job, which is a brutal job, you know, which is really about regulation, regulating people into packageable units, yeah. At which point it becomes a bullshit job, like one of the most meaningful jobs I think, like, just like a sort of inherently meaningful job becomes the opposite.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about realizing that Benito Sereno is partly about labor? Well,
1: yeah. I was just sort of watching all these different kinds of strikes that were happening all over the place. The graduate student strikes, yeah. farmers' strikes all over, the trucker strikes. You know, Kellogg's, John Deere, on and on and on. Strikes in Haiti. And I was, one of the things that I was sort of realizing and, and thinking, Oh, I was thinking about, is how there's a great utility to, you know, to the owners or whatever you want to call them, the whatever you want to call them, to making it seem as though those strikes are not connected. You know, that the desire to have tenable working conditions across continents, across demographics, demographics that will be sort of made to appear at odds, you know, I think they're very sophisticated at that. And I think um, when those things break apart a little bit, it's trouble. It's trouble.
0: Good trouble. You're listening to a conversation with poet Ross Gay here on Interstates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm talking with Ross Gay about his new essay collection, Inciting Joy. And I had to admit to him that I almost missed the bigger point of one of the central essays in the book. I was going to say this when when I stopped rolling and took a break, but I'll say it anyway the masculinity essay and the grief essay but it starts talking about masculinity and that's how i started thinking about it because i was like oh it's because you've got partly because you've got that quote at the beginning from eileen miles asking someone to write this and it seems so important to be writing and thinking about the masculinity kind of overshadows the grief which also seems like a metaphor (laughs) But anyway, so to continue from what we were talking about before about um, these questions about, like, the university as a way to transform this brutality into something that looks different but might be the same, I found that to be the case in the grief essay as well. Was Was it hard to write that? Was it hard to, like, engage with the masculinity? Or did you feel like at this point you've gotten to a point where... You can do it.
1: Yes, and I sort of express the the wariness of writing about masculinity throughout the essay, in part because I'm sort of I think, as I say, I'm sort of like resistant or hesitant to re instantiate what I think of as like the boring binary, you know, and um, and at the same time, let me try to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that was a an interesting sort of weigh in, like that was that's one of the earliest pieces that got written it was actually i realized this later because i was looking through some some writing that i had done on basketball some basketball writing correspondence kind of essays pieces that i was working on with my friend student noah davis and in some of these like pieces digressive pieces where i was also learning how to write these longer expansive pieces i realized i was i had written like a bunch of the sections versions a year and change before and um and it's kind of interesting that the way into that thinking about masculinity as i have been for decades now was by thinking about sports so in that way it kind of wasn't difficult though i do feel like there's something kind of vulnerable about it to be like i'm going to talk about i'm going to talk about this (laughs) masculinity and i'm going to talk about it by talking about football (laughs) You know, it's like, it's almost, maybe I feel shy because it's too obvious. It's too like, well, of course you are. <laughs> but I, well, I am, you know, I, I guess I am.
0: <laughs> Was it writing about joy that brought you to that? Like to the, this connection between, because it's about Masculinity, and it's about grief. And I, in my notes, I just wrote crying and masculinity, you know? So there's so many moments where you're writing about this desire to hold in yeah. tears.
1: Yeah, this, this question, it makes me remember in part that, like I said, I had written a lot of the parts of it before, but there was, and my editor actually asked me, do you have a piece on masculinity? And I think it was because she had read another essay of mine I think she probably, now that I'm thinking about it, I think she had probably read, she had read these basketball essays. And I think she had probably pointed and said maybe there's some there to write. Which is kind of interesting because that was the only one that was sort of, uh, not an assignment exactly, but someone else suggested it and it becomes the longest (laughs) piece in the book. And it does some, some of the most important work in the book, you know? And, um... I think of a through line. It's actually, I'm thinking your colleague, our friend, Kate Young. There was a an essay in there that I had drafted and I was trying to figure out on foraging. And I feel like that's for another book or someone else mm-hmm. um, to write it. But partly what I was trying to sort of think about in that foraging essay is, like, I was thinking about how, in a way, we are... Um, When you're shown how to forage, where to forage, I was thinking specifically about Kate and her partner Carl taking us to a a place in the woods where there was a pawpaw grove two years ago probably. I was thinking that there's a way that we become particularly permeable. Our need becomes evident in a certain kind of way. Not that I needed pawpaws, but I kind of needed pawpaws. (laughs) (laughs) And so you have your friend being like, okay, we can show you where the pawpaws are. So that piece was, I think, going to be some kind of way to be, you know, thinking about how um, one of the beauties about foraging is that you always have to be shown how and where to do it, you mm-hmm. know, almost always. Sometimes you'll stumble upon the thing. But in, when you do, you're going to show someone else,
0: yeah. you know, if you're a reasonable human. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, some of those morale spots. I know,
1: I know, I know. <laughs> but so, so anyway, that was kind of in my head, and as that essay fell away, this grief slash masculinity essay started to come up. And I think there is this through line. And one of the through lines that the grief masculinity essay catches hold of or is carrying is that one of the things that I think joy does, or it requires us to attend to, is how, how there was something really fundamentally, again, the word permeable, but like that we are tethered to one another in these ways that can be terrifying. Like the kind of tethers, we've talked about this exactly, actually, precisely, and you said it in a way, and I'm gonna almost quote you. I may have adapted it a little bit. <laughs> but it's something like, oh, well, you said um, "it's it, it can be connection. Connection is not always good. It can be both connection and you said another way. Part of what I was sort of realizing as I sort of try to define this thing called joy and as I try to imagine or figure out or articulate what are the practices that incite it or inspire it, I was becoming more and more aware that many of these practices, really what they're doing is trying to articulate and illuminate our connection, which is immense and incontrovertible and you can't get out of it. And what grief it feels like to me, or, or I should say maybe this sort of question about masculinity, it feels like one of the sorrows of masculinity is that it is the sometimes adamant resistance to that connection, which maybe might be more easily articulated as need. You know, one of the most devastating things about a certain brand of masculinity, I'd say, would be the, like the nightmare fantasy of being needless, being without needs, that you could be and you will do anything to anyone and anything to, uh, to prove that you're without your needs. You know, you might get you some slaves. You might be horrible to the people that you love. You might destroy, you know, the land that you're so
0: lucky as to, you know, reside on or near. Okay, uh, just cutting in here. You know those footnotes we have been talking about I asked Ross to read one of them. It's from that big essay on grief and masculinity. And I should note that this one mentions the existence of a somewhat solo sexual activity in about a minute and a half, in case you want to skip it. Or I don't know, skip to it.
1: I find myself sometimes asked to talk about, quote, masculinity in the context of my poems, which have gardens and weeping and soft things in them, I guess. I'm asked to offer some insight on the workings or, more accurately, not-workings, of so-called men, which I always hedge about, in part because I am reluctant to re the ridiculous and remedial binary that I am not interested in, or at least I want to not be interested in, maintaining. The plaque of which binary, or rather, having been trained up in it, I find myself almost daily trying, or trying to try, to scrape out of myself, for it is bad for the heart, mine and the collective. And so I'm inclined to say, well, maybe boys or so called boys or quote boys, etc. Just as I'm inclined to say, well, maybe masculinity or so called masculinity or quote the masculine, etc. Also, a lot of, I don't know, maybe sorta, kinda, and not sure. I'm inclined to hem and haw and resist the, des- resist the desire to pin down or fix in these conversations what constitutes a boy or a man or the masculine or the ways those ideas overlap or converge. Part of my hemming and hawing is, in fact, a desire to point out that those things often don't overlap, and when they do, sometimes, their overlapping also overlaps with us shaving our legs together or masturbating together in our bunk beds, hang on up there, or applying nair to each other's backs, or spooning, penetration or not. Which is to say, seems to me anyway, that the very premise of the, quote, woman, queer, oddly behaving man is deployed to maintain the lie of the fit between the, quote, man and the, quote, masculine. Or perhaps more to the point, the premise of the woman, queer, or oddly behaving man is maintained in the maintenance of the lie of the not fit between the quote man and the quote feminine, which means in addition to liking pink and pretty stuff maybe and flower earrings and colorful scarves and jasmine oil and cute itty bitty things you can carry in your purse and crying, being permeable, porous, tender, soft, gooey. Yielding, leaky, mutable, amorphous, indiscreet, attached, polymorphous, relating, emotional, influx, movable, bonkers, unfixed and unfixable, and in perpetual need of care, which, sorry to tell you, are just the qualities of a creature, regardless of genitals or gender. It is called entangled life, which is also just called life, to which we are regardless of any systems and stories to the contrary or rage, rage against it, subject to. Or, glass half full, enthrall to. Another word for which is gratitude, enthrall of our truly infinite entanglements. Though, quote, the man requires it not be so, he refuses the irrefutable fact and will do anything to prove it. In this way, the man is like the white, the corollary other being the black, or whatever other serves and aids that day's conquest, that day's theft, deep in the lonely dream of unentangled life, and murdering the world to stay asleep, and alone, and no frailer critter on earth. But when our creatureliness, or softness, or permeability, or movability, or neediness becomes undeniable— you're heartbroken, your coach hurts your feelings, you can't reach that hairy spot on your back, you're in love, you're losing your mind, you're dying. If we do not yield to and join our need, if we do not accept and even admire and exalt it, there seems a very good chance we might kill everything around us. Not only that, there seems a good chance we will kill everything.
0: As we were uh, getting toward the end of that, and I also have a book here and was kind of looking ahead, I realized that the two things I've asked you to read now kind of ended in the same place, which is like, (laughs) we're going to kill everything. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I'm like, does that, uh, I don't know if that reflects something about (laughs) my choices, but it kind of, I mean, it got me thinking like. Something about the way I think in some of my work I've tended to focus on the things that I fear yeah. the most. Yeah. Like the end of the <clears throat> planet or whatever. Yeah. The end of the livable planet yeah. at least. And thankfully I don't that's not where your <laughs> stuff ends. Yeah. Or well, I don't know if it begins there or not, but A little bit. Okay. Yeah, and I'm actually glad
1: you pointed that out. Um I didn't know that I didn't notice that before, but there are like a handful of ways that this book originates. And one is that because I wrote Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude and The Book of Delights, like I'm the lucky participant in a lot of conversations about this question of joy. And one of the questions that people will ask me is something like, is joy the serious subject of, you know, is joy serious? Is it worth our time? And to me, that's a kind of evidence of a childish definition of joy. And that that's kind of like the joy that, You get when you get a new pair of shoes, you know, which isn't joy. It's something else. It's like, yeah, you got a new pair of shoes. Joy, the definition being my definition, you know, the definition I'm sort of wondering about being the light that emanates from us when we help each other carry each other's sorrows is something else. It's not that at all. So that in a way answers that question. And, And the book is in a response to that question too, in part. But the book is also... It's funny that you chose that teaching essay because so much of what I think of teaching is, like, how do we survive the various collapses that we're going to be surviving, that we are surviving? And this book is, in part, a meditation on the ways that there are already practices set up to help us do that. So you kind of nailed it when you, when you saw those things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, that absolutely—that totally makes sense. Like that, these practices have had to be in place for so long already. Yeah, totally. because all of these other things were all alre- have already been in place too. Yeah, like the like we're afraid of. You know, we're looking at climate change and all these things, um, breakdowns of various sorts in society, and you know, the extraction of labor and cap- the you know hardship of like having to live in this system. Yeah, those have been going on for a long time.
1: Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, exactly. All these brutalities, all these collapses. And and one of the things that I think is important is that, you know, joy is one of the things that I think I say, I think of it as like a kind of survival. It has to do with our survival. And uh-huh. it has to do with our survival in part because, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, we are the evidence of people caring for us, having cared for one another, actually. We are the evidence of that. We are the evidence of people sort of enduring and carrying together their sorrows, you know, all of us. Yeah. And there's this other thing, which is that we often talk about epigenetic trauma, but we don't as much talk about epigenetic joy. And I was just in Youngstown and visiting with my Aunt Butter, and when I think of her... Being around, she's 96 or something, you know, (laughs) first of all, I'm like, um, that's amazing. It's wonderful to have such a beautiful, long life. But I also think of, like, the work that she's often doing, which is the work of, like, stitching the cousins together. And part of that stitching together, which she takes so seriously, it does not come out of, yeah, you all have been together forever. Like, it's always been safe and comfortable and happy. No, it's out of like there was the institutionalized destruction of our families and we have survived that joyfully. And I would like us to keep on recognizing that there are practices by which we will continue to to survive that and survive other things. So call your cousin in Chicago <laughs> who you've never met. <laughs> you know, it can feel like it can feel like oh there's yeah, I'm supposed to call my cousin. And then you realize, no, this is like a, this is a, this is a command from joy. You know, like you belong to someone, you
0: belong to people. And just to extend that a little farther, I, I just, I just loved at the end of the grief essay, now I'm calling it the grief essay. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We had to talk through all that for me to get there. Uh, There's a couple places I think where you talk about falling together. Mm-hmm. And also though this section where you kind of come to this thing about grief where it's about change mm-hmm. and that that you know we all ideally change. <laughs> you know even though we're so inclined to try to hold on to something cuz we think cuz we're used to it and it seems even if it's like painful and maybe brutal yeah. it seems like what's make what makes sense. And so we don't want to change. And can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. I'm curious if that's something you kind of figured out as you were writing.
1: I think, you know, it's funny because that, you know, the the little thing I say is I wonder if I yeah. offer, I'm sorry, I'm going to offer a definition of grief and it's the metabolization of change. Yeah, right. Which came so clearly that I feel like, oh, I must have read that in Maggie Nelson or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the part of what I think I'm wondered about in that in that essay and in that moment of the essay is that, one, you know, I'm sort of talking about figuring out how to be present with my mother's sorrow when my father died, which is also to say how to be present with my own sorrow when my father died, which was not easy and is not easy for me, in part because, as I sort of speculate in the essay, one of the things that grief does is it joins you to the grieving period when when you connect to your grieving you connect to the grieving which means your sort of boundaries or borders start to fade away you become less self possessed you know all these things and the other thing yeah the the kind of what can feel very painful as you're saying like change when we're In relationship, you know, the ways that we love one another can often be—we can often refuse to acknowledge other people's changing, you know. We can often—not maliciously, uh, not—and that might just be by not asking them what they feel or what they think. It's sort of common, regular behavior. (laughs) But it seems like sometimes it might be that common regular behavior might be a way to ward off the grief of of understanding that we are forever unknown to each other. Which could also be a kind of delight because we get to constantly be getting to know one another. Um, but that kind of unknownness to each other, it seems like that, that can be very difficult. But then pinning the knownness on someone itself is... It's you know it's kind of rough. Yeah, it's kind of rough. I mean, when we do it on ourselves too, right? You know, it's kind of rough. So if we aren't able to allow ourselves to change, and I'm not at all saying get better or improve. I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. I'm really talking about change, like even mm-hmm. like just age. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it seems like something we need to practice doing, allowing each other to change, which is not only like sort of in you know personal relationships but I also think in terms of like how we think of and I talk about this in the essay how we think of how we've been brutal with one another if we don't have the sort of belief in or the capacity the belief in I'd say or an understanding of change that it happens that we're always doing it always doing it always doing it It seems like we might be more inclined to fix one another Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in the place where well we never ought to be fixed Mm -hmm. you know
0: yeah i mean because we get these ideas of how we could or feel like we should be better quote unquote and also how we might want the other people in our lives to to be better yeah it's it's so funny because, like, we can talk about the, the abstract, but right now I'm kind of feeling it, and it's scary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally.
1: <laughs> I mean, because it's a kind of groundlessness. And again, like, to me, it, it's like one of these places where if we have ways to imagine it or think about it or organize— I don't know, organize, maybe it's the wrong word, but, like, hold it, it is another moment instance of potential joy because it's like this is a kind of groundlessness together. You know, like we're always unfolding. We're always becoming unknown to each other. And how do we care for each other through it, through that, love each other through that, you know? Um, And
0: because we're always becoming unknown to ourselves too. That's it. Yeah. That's it.
1: That's it. Yeah. 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 I have this story in in, in the book and I talk about where I decided to stop doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu because I was sort of like in my head, I was like that, I realized at some point, not on my own, that maybe I was cultivating this defensiveness, which was already a pretty strong quality in my <laughs> in my character, you might say. <laughs> and I thought, well maybe I should maybe I should let this Brazilian Jiu Jitsu go. And and I was just telling this to my buddy Jay, who I've been like Besties from since I'm thirteen. And I said this to him. And I, I imagined the sort of, you know, the very probably nothing Silence. that was on the phone for a second. I imagined him looking at me like, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Which he didn't. He did nothing. <laughs> but I imagined it. And I think probably because I was looking at myself and being unknown to myself. And the feeling, the actual feeling was that my body had sort of dissipated into like a million particles. Hmm. That was the actual <laughs> feeling. I'm talking to my bestie. You know, and I feel like I'm a completely, like, ephemeral thing, which I am. (laughs) Right. But it was weird. It was a weird feeling and really instructive.
0: Yeah. Can you maybe, if do you have time to maybe read the end of that passage? Yeah,
1: totally. I suspect it was the feeling of changing in the presence of someone through whom I have come to recognize myself. I recognize myself because he recognizes me and whose recognition feels like safe harbor. Stanley Kunitz, in his poem, Touch Me, says it as well as I've heard it said, and it is especially moving that he kept saying it until he was about 100. Remind me who I am. The difficulty, though, arises when that safe harbor, who knows us, does not allow us to pick up anchor and unmoor, another word for which is, change, or when the safe harbor then refuses harbor, believe me, Jay refused nothing. This was my scene, as I think we have all probably done to those we love. Because unknowing someone whom we think we know and through whom we think we know ourselves, parent, child, lover, friend, nation, belief, it can also be terrifying, disintegrating. It can feel like dying. But when we allow and expect each other to change, and even more to the point, when we witness the learning, the changing, the grieving, with curiosity and patience and care and love, when we make room for and witness and invite each other's unfixing, and so are unfixing ourselves, when we join the grieving, and when we join in grieving, and when we do it again and again, making of that soft, Mutual, curious, groundless witnessing not only an endeavor, but also a practice. We talking about practice again. When we do these things, we fall apart into one another. We fall into each other. And when we catch the grave light shimmering from the tethers between us when it happens, our dying again and again in each other's presence, this falling together, it is called this holding each other through the fallen, I'm pretty sure of this, one of the names anyway, joy. And given as we are always falling, we might always be holding each other like this. We might always be holding each other through our falling and submerged that way in the grave light of joy.
0: Roske, thank you so much. Thank you. It's good to Great talk to you, you as always that was poet Ross Gay. His new book of essays, Inciting Joy, comes out on October 25th. You can read it wherever you get your books. And this is Inner States from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates innerstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Ayoban Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer, John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Roske. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Alright, time for some nonverbal listening. <whistles> You've been listening to a hawk over town on a fall day. I think it's a red tail, but if you're a bird person, feel free to correct me. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening.